He has been an attorney who is accustomed to uh, legal documents and signing legal documents. He's also transitioned into a folklore singer-songwriter. Many of you in our audience have heard Alan Levi sing and have been blessed by his talents. We are going to dig into who Alan Levi is and let him share his incredible story on Faces of Faith. You don't want to miss it. There is the word, there is the way. And brothers and sisters who find strength in their belief, we meet Faces of Faith with Phil Scoggins. And if I'm not mistaken, I think this is episode number 15, and Alan Levi, you get to be my honored guest today, and I'm so thankful you drove down from Hamilton, Georgia to be here in our podcast studio. Dylan Hansen is our uh, trusted director that will keep us on, on the right path and out great. of the ditch. Great, great, great. <laughs> and I am honored indeed to be here, so thank you for the invitation. We uh, have engaged in conversation, and and I think a lot of your life really uh revolves around conversations. But I want to, um, to give you an opportunity to talk about your life and uh, how the Lord has woven the various uh, people, um, uh, experiences together to create uh, the person that we know as Alan Leva. I, I love what you do. Uh, I, um, I love the person that you are, and I want that person, folks who don't know that Alan Levi, at the end of this hour, I feel like that they're going to be uh, thankful that they have spent this past hour listening to you and getting to know you better. So uh, uh, I think you even asked this of Dylan when you first got in the room. So what's your story, Dylan? So, so Alan Levi, what's your story? Yeah, well, first of all, before answering the question, thank you for the question. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, but mostly, thank you for what you're doing here. Uh, I think if there is anything that draws people together, it is the shared story of life. Uh, years ago, I did a CD project called People in My Town, uh, in which I arbitrarily drew a circle from my front porch five miles out. And I said, I'm going to meet seven people in that five-mile circle I'm going to interview them just like you're doing now, record the interview, edit yeah. the interview, and find song material from each one of those people. And so I approached uh, some who I uh, didn't know at all, and they were always a bit surprised, first of all, that someone was interested in their story, and secondly, uh, they were disbelieving that there was anything about their life that was song-worthy. And I had so much fun doing I that project. Of all the projects I've ever done, that was my favorite. And uh, it just emphasized to me uh, how wonderful stories are if we will just lean in and listen closely and have an inquisitive mind. Um, so m mine is just another story uh, in, in the great library of stories that God uh, has put together by making so many people in the world. Uh, mine started down in a little town called Baymanette, Alabama. Uh, my mom, who was a farm girl from Mississippi, married my forestry uh, dad. And uh, in 1956, I was born in Baymanette, Alabama, one of uh, eventually five children. In 1958, we moved up here to Columbus for uh, business reasons for my dad. And I grew up here in Columbus, in the Columbus area. But because Dad was a consultant forester, he worked a lot around the, the area okay. and outside of Columbus. Uh, so I spent a lot of time in the country, a lot of time up in Harris County. 
developed a real love for salt-of-the-earth, storytelling, good-talking people. And uh, went to school here in Columbus, graduated in 1974 from Hardaway, uh, knowing that I was going to be a lawyer, but not knowing why or even what lawyers did. We have none in our family. And uh, so I, I, I what, can't... What, what, what seed was planted? Yeah, that, Dad. Okay. Yeah, Dad. My dad, uh, I think, uh, because he, he heard me talk a lot as a kid, probably more than a parent <laughs> would like, uh, he thought I had some kind of uh, aptitude or gifts that would lend themselves to the law profession, okay. as he understood it. Uh, which, again, was uh, pretty rudimentary. He didn't really know what all was involved. But uh, graduated high school, got a degree in English, uh, just because I knew words would be important to a law school education. Uh, miraculously was admitted into a law school. Um, went uh, nine straight quarters, uh, graduated in 1980. And I wasn't really sure that I wanted to be a lawyer. I can't say that I enjoyed the law school experience much at all. It was much more demanding uh, much more competitive uh, than I ever anticipated. And the reason I went straight through was because I wanted to marry a girl I was crazy in love with uh, <laughs> in, in college. So law school was really getting in the way of that part of life, you know. But uh, but anyway, uh, graduated, came back home. Uh, I, I did know some local attorneys, got a job with a firm here in town. And much to my pleasant surprise, enjoyed law practice. Uh, it was stressful, it was demanding, uh, it was frustrating in a lot of ways, but I loved law practice because it was all about stories, the kind of law that I did, uh, which was mostly uh, courtroom work, litigation. Mm -hmm. uh, I did do other, other things, uh, did a lot of adoption work. Those are always remarkable stories from so many different angles. Mm -hmm. And I loved the word and the storytelling part of law practice. Uh, so I did that for 10 years. Um, enjoyed it, got my legs under me, and then in the early 1990s, I left uh, left law practice to move to Scotland for a couple of years just because I was kind of burned out, still single, didn't have much responsibility, didn't have any debt, so there wasn't anything that was holding me down. And I always thought I might like to go uh, back to college and get a degree and then teach uh, college university-level literature. Uh, I would add to that, Phil, that um, when I was a student at the University of Georgia, not a, a believer, not a follower of Christ, mm -hmm. I had some literature courses that were extremely formative to me. And just in God's wonderful providence, uh, I had some, some courses, one in the poetry of Milton and then another one in Southern fiction. And for some reason, the convergence of those classes, the texts that we were reading and where I was in life, uh, just had a tremendous impact on me. In the, in the Poetry of Milton course, we used only the, uh, the text of Milton and the scriptures. And so I was reading the scripture as an academic footnote mm -hmm. to this great text, but at the same time, God had already brought some really wonderful people into my life, and all of these dots started connecting up. So uh, right before I started law school was when I surrendered my life to Christ and began my wonderful journey with him. But, um, but when, I, when I went to Edinburgh, I got my master's in English literature and thoroughly enjoyed my two years there. It was so good just to come out of the rat race and to catch my breath. What, uh, what made you choose Scotland? Uh, I had been reading voraciously an author named George MacDonald. Uh, George MacDonald had a, uh, a, a great influence on C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says that it was the writings of MacDonald that baptized his imagination 
and helped usher him into his life of faith. Uh, but lots of others, uh, T.S. Eliot, uh, I think Tolkien, lots of people were influenced by McDonald's writings. And I really took a shine to the stories that I read by McDonald. But I had also vacationed there once before for a month and just felt a, a, an immediate affinity with Scotland. There's just something about the place. Uh, every time I go, I feel like I'm, I'm going home or at least to somewhere familiar. But got my degree, uh, my master's in English literature, and was uh, admitted into the Ph.D. program, which would have been necessary to teach university level here. But it was going to take four or five years. I didn't think I had that much academia uh, left in my system. So I came back home and did part-time law practice and, uh, and was piddling with music on the side. And uh, so after, what, three, four years of that, uh, I, I thought, I'm going to get this music thing out of my system. So, Where did uh, that come from? The uh, Parents? The, partly. I mean, the music thing had always been with me. Okay. Uh, I started playing when I was early high school, maybe middle school. Guitar? Yeah, guitar. Uh, I think there's some music in our, in our gene pool. Mm -hmm. There's certainly some poetry in our gene pool. And... Uh, so I had, had, had played a lot over the years, but it was always just avocationally, something I did for fun. And once I started law practice, I realized this is really good therapy for me. So uh, I would come home in the evenings, and most of the time I would spend the evenings playing guitar if I wasn't out with, with friends. But uh, I, I, had, I never had any expectation I would be, be able to make a living as a musician, but I thought, I'm at least going to give it a try. So, so I went to my dad, whose judgment I've always trusted much more than my own, and said, hey, I'm thinking about leaving law practice again to, to do music. Uh, what do you think? And he had paid for my education, so <laughs> I, I felt like I had some obligation to ask him. Yeah. And he was, uh, he was enthusiastic uh, in his affirmation that I should give it a try. He had had a chance to play professional baseball and didn't do it. And I think that he's kind of lived his life wondering what if. Mm -hmm. And so he said, don't, don't. Don't, don't do that. Yeah, don't do that. Don't put yourself in that situation. And if you need me to help you financially, which I didn't, he said, I'd be glad to help you. I said, I just need your blessing. So when he gave me his blessing, I thought, I'm going to be a musician. And my career plan, honestly, was to do it for a couple of years, go broke, and then go back to law practice. <laughs> that, was, that was the trajectory that I thought it was on. And, and, I, and it made all the sense in the world to, to write it that way. But after, I mean, within the first year, I was covered up with work. And uh, I was making a, a good living at it. And so, yeah, I did. I, I'm still doing it. I still write songs all the time. And Who reached out to you and helped you? I, I know I can look back when I started a video production business. And, right. and the people that uh, said, this guy needs some help. Let, let's give him some work. Yeah. Who reached out to you to, to say, hey, I want Alan Levi to write a song for me? Yeah, God, that's great. So, um the year is 1995 when I make this decision to leave law practice. And, uh, and I, was tr I was trying to come up. I, I kind of had this, this very nebulous career path that I thought it was on that was doomed to failure. But I did say to myself, where would I have an audience that would be receptive to what I do? It's a hard, it's a hard business to make sense of if you don't have a label or something around you, which I didn't. Mm -hmm. I was way too old. The way that I write is way too quirky, uh, not a terribly good-looking guy. So there was nothing about me that was appealing to a record company. So I realized I've got to figure this out myself. So 1995, I'm thinking, okay, we're a few months away from the Olympics here in Columbus. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
and I thought maybe I could write something um, affectionate, historical, storytelling, tongue-in-cheek about this area. And uh, that's where Rivertown came from. And so uh, I went to Mr. Bill Turner, one of the patriarchs of our community and a wonderful, wonderful man of faith himself. And I was explaining to him my idea, not really looking so much for financial backing, but again for blessing. Is this something that might work? And, uh, and I met with Mr. Bill down at his office on, uh, on Front Avenue. And, and he, was, he was such a kind gentleman that he, uh, he was very affirming. Uh, he was encouraging, but I could tell he didn't have any idea what I was trying to describe to him. So I said, Mr. Bill, can I come back in a couple of days? And I'm going to go home and record some songs. And so I went home and I wrote three songs uh, that, that day and the next day, recorded you know, rough versions of them, including one about the first bridge, the bridge from uh, here to Phoenix City. The, the title of the song was <coughs> The Bridge from King to Godwin, that story of John Godwin and Horace King. Mm-hmm. And then I wrote a couple of other ones and went back and I said, these are the kind of songs I have in mind to do. And so he listened and the, light, the lights turned on. He realized what you wanted to do. Yeah. And so he was, uh, he was extremely helpful. Uh, he connected me with people here locally that could, could help me on some, uh, some level. Uh, got a little bit of underwriting for it. And that was really, really. Uh, when did that? It it appeared at the Springer. Yeah, yeah. It was so debuted there, right? Yeah. So I uh, I wrote it, did a little bit at the opening ceremony, did I think maybe two or three songs, and then the day after the opening, I flew out to Colorado to do some Young Life work, which was another big help to me early on. Young Life is a ministry to high school students, mm-hmm. and I was there for a month. Uh, the original plan was for Rivertown, those twelve or thirteen songs, to be. Um, kind of a, a, a large format production. So I met with the symphony and the college and the jazz department out there, Paul Vandergast and, and Paul Pierce down at the Springer. We mm-hmm. were, we were going to try to do something really big, uh, but it was, it was almost intimidating uh, by the time that I understood the dimensions they wanted to put to it. And I don't read music. And so the thought of <coughs> working with highly trained, highly sophisticated musicians really, really scared me. Um, so we, we backed. So that. you don't read music. I don't read any music. Yeah, but there are a lot of there are a lot of guys and girls who play guitars that don't read music <laughs> and keyboards and other things too. You know, I mean, music came before notation. <laughs> we were singing before anybody wrote it down. I think. Uh, so that's that's been something of a limitation, but not really. Okay. In one t- in one way, it's maybe been a limitation. In other ways, I think it's been liberating, tremendously liberating. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so anyway, when I came back from Colorado, uh, Jim Blanchard mm-hmm. at Sonovas, uh, who's a dear friend, uh, approached me about maybe doing something with Rivertown for Sonovas. And uh, Nancy Bunton, mm-hmm. who was working there at the time, uh, she and I formed an alliance. And I think we did six nights of it at the Springer. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it was so much fun. Uh, but by then, I was starting to get really busy around the country. Um, largely because of Young Life. I've played at this, this Young Life camp for a month. It's for high school kids, but there's always a group of adults that attend the camp as well. And a lot of them are business owners and people with, you know, with realms of influence. And they would say, hey, could you come play for my corporate function in September? Or could you come do a Christmas gathering, you know, whatever? And before long, I was, I was covered up with work. But, uh, but when I started, uh, this is maybe germane to why we're here, uh, one of the first things I did, in fact, the first thing I did, I went, went to my studio, which was at the farm. I, I had it built before I left law practice. 
And as you know, it's just a tiny little man cave, but it's, it's adequate for what I do. Uh, and I wrote a mission statement for myself, uh, asking myself the question, why do I think I need to be doing this? There are lots of really great musicians that do everything I do much, much better. Uh, so why do I think I should be doing this music thing? And I had wrestled with that for a long time in the process of getting out of law practice because as a believer, uh, it was real easy to shine uh, as a believer uh, in the legal community. And and by shine, I don't mean uh, anything impressive. I mean just stand apart. Right. Be on time, be decent, be kind, be truthful, those kinds of things. And be a fierce advocate at the same time. Be a good lawyer. Mm-hmm. And I thought... Uh, can I, in good conscience, uh, leave the law community where there is not an awful lot of light uh, to go into this world that I think I'm going to really enjoy, uh, and I might, I might be around Christians a lot. So I had to, I had to really wrestle that to the mat. Uh, but what I came up with is a mission statement on day one of my new career uh, as I was battling with uh, the guilt of doing something that I knew I was going to enjoy most of the time was uh, a statement that said that uh, I feel like God's called me to this work to write songs that, and this is the phrase, provoke Godward thought. That's the short version of my mission statement. Okay. Write songs that provoke Godward thought. And and uh, and that means that I could play those songs anywhere. I don't write for church audiences. I, I like to think that whatever I write uh, works in a church setting. Mm-hmm. But I specifically wanted to write to people who don't yet know the beautiful story that you and I embrace. Uh, the longer version of the mission statement is provoke God with thought to the end that people would have a transformational encounter with Jesus Christ. And I think that even in a secular setting, uh, when they tell me don't talk about your faith, uh, I still think that songs and stories have the power mm-hmm. to bring people into a transformational moment. So with that, however many years ago it was, 1995, uh, in 96, when I turned the corner, I've been writing songs and telling telling stories, and I love it. Well, you not only um, prick people's hearts with the words and how you, how you write, but uh, you've taken your lyricist talent into becoming an author. Yeah. And... Uh, I told you I spent yesterday and last night, stayed up till 2 this morning, oh rereading mm. The Last Sweet Mile, A Journey of Brothers, a memoir by Alan Levi. And um, this is dedicated to your brother, Gary. Right. It has been, what, nine years since yeah. his passing? That's right. Um, let's, let's dive into the book. Okay. And, and your, um, what propelled you into, into this direction and and let's talk about your hero. Yeah, thank you. That's that's the that's the perfect uh, term. So uh, first of all, I guess it would be fair to say it was not a choice. Uh, there are a lot of a lot of things I think that happen in our lives that uh, mm-hmm. we just kind of find ourselves in the situation and we respond appropriately, hopefully. So my brother got sick. Uh, my brother Gary, thirteen months younger than me. Uh, by the time uh, he and I reached early adulthood, we we had been through all the fighting and the squabbling that that brothers do, but we were best friends. And uh, he really was, uh, my hero still is. Um, But he was diagnosed with a stage four glioblastoma, which is a brain cancer. And uh, I think he and I both knew when when he was diagnosed that uh, this was gonna be his his road home. 
Uh, we prayed for healing and those sorts of things, believe that God could and might heal Gary. But I think he and I resigned ourselves to uh, to probability in some sense of the word early on. And so we just wanted it to be the, the best time we could spend together. We didn't know if it was going to be a week, a month, a year, a decade. He was uh, in his mid-50s, right? That's right, yeah. And uh, in extremely good health, uh, so much so that he didn't have a doctor. We didn't even have a doctor we could call when he first uh, started noticing some things that were uh, a little bit out of uh, character for him, uh, mainly forgetfulness. <clears throat> but um, when when he was diagnosed, uh, my sister Beth, who works for me, was able to cancel pretty much everything that I had on my calendar at the time. And, uh, and I spent the years, exactly 365 days with Gary from the day he was diagnosed until the day that he, he passed away. And uh, there were times during that year I wasn't really doing anything creative to speak of, but I was writing notes to myself, letters, little journal entries. I'm not terribly disciplined about that, but from time to time I'll keep a journal about a significant episode in life. And so after Gary died, uh, I realized a few months in, I'm forgetting a lot about him. I have, I have a, a really awful memory, and that's not an overstatement. My memory really, uh, it, it's lacking something. So early on I realized I'm forgetting things about Gary, and I need to write them down for my own benefit. But then I thought, well, maybe, uh, maybe I could do something in the form of a long letter for my family especially the, the little teeny ones that did not really know Gary well, and then ones that have been born since then. Mm -hmm. And so I started writing this letter, thinking that I would finish it, go to, you know, go to a, an office supply store, get it printed, and give a copy to everybody in the family kind of thing. Uh, and it turned out being a longer letter than I anticipated. Uh, it was a wonderful experience to write the letter. And if nobody had ever read it, I'm so thankful that I had the time and the freedom and flexibility to do it. Uh, but a friend of mine, a musician named Andrew Peterson, was in town, and he asked me what I was working on. And I said, well, I've been writing this thing for my family about Gary, and, and uh, he's an author himself. He, he said, would you mind if I read it? And I said, no. Nah. I said, but you're going to have to be really forgiving of it. Uh, I didn't lay it out or anything. Well, he read it, and, uh, and he encouraged me to, uh, to do a bit of editing on it, and then he and his brother Pete founded a, a, a print label the rabbit room and so he said would you mind if we print it so uh, it was printed and that's that's the book but i never set out to write a book uh, but uh, i'm glad i did for my own benefit and hopefully for my family and for others who've read it uh, but i really enjoyed the process of writing without sound in my head just just writing words and trying to string together sentences that uh, that make sense there's just some places where I've highlighted um, one talks about and, and, and the term or the, the adjective is used in the title of the book sweet Yeah. the term of endearment sweet boy is dad's distillation of all Gary was when I asked him and mom both separately to describe Gary as a child that was the word but they both chose wow. sweet wow and I thought it interesting that that found its way into the title of the book, that's The Last the, Sweet Mile. That's the first time I've heard that since, uh, since I turned it over to be printed. And uh, that's, that's exactly what Gary was. He was a sweet human being, as you are. You're a sweet man. I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. We're going to just take a detour here. <laughs> you <laughs> warned me about this. Yeah, and, you, and, <clears throat> and I want this to be a conversation rather than a monologue. Um, 
and I think people would uh, would be interested in this. So, Phil, you you have one of the most positive, cheerful, winsome personalities about you, and unless you're just a grand faker, uh, it 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 seems very real and deep seated with you. So here's here's my question, and I'm asking because I'm writing a lot of songs right now mm-hmm. about the brokenness of the world, the hurt that's out there. I see it with my dad. He's 93. My mom died a couple of years ago. He's he's He'll die a grief-stricken man and also a very sweet man. But um, so I've thought about you specifically in this regard. I've thought about you specifically in this regard. How is it that somebody that constantly rubs up against the darkest parts of life in our community, constantly reporting really hard, grim stories, how do you keep such a glowing, radiant, cheerful demeanor about you um, with all of that stuff that's going on in your mind on a given day? Well, the simple answer is um, God allows me to to do it. I go back to um, when I was 10 years old. I was at a church service, and um, I was pretending to be asleep on the front pew and the evangelist was preaching his heart out, and Mom was sitting in the pew behind me. And when it came time for uh, the altar call, she leaned over and tapped me on the shoulder, and she said, do you feel like going to pray? And I said, yes, Mom, I do. Mm. So at 10, went down and gave my heart to the Lord. And, um, and then... When I think about fast forward, I'm going to be 69 in a couple of weeks. Um, and and in the business that I'm in, you run across a lot of um, challenges to your faith, a lot of people that, that want to question. And I love when Easter time rolls around because the song that describes, I guess, why I'm the way that I am, it says, you ask me how... I know he lives. Yeah. He lives within my heart. Yeah. Good. And that assurance that nobody else, you may question it, but it's an assurance for me because it's what I know resides within me in my yeah. heart. Yeah. So that is the part of me that a lot of people may not, uh, they see manifestations of that. I hope they do. We, we want to be reflections of the one that we serve. Right. So, um, and, and to live in an environment at home where uh, I have a praying wife who understands the pressures that I deal with and prays for me every day. Yeah. Um, I think prayer is a, is a component of, of how you deal in a world of sin and sorrow and violence and killing. And, yeah. uh, but yet... Um, a part of I I feel like uh, my my job as a, a journalist is to also offer uh, positive stories, good stories. Yeah. Um, and when I do my news three neighbor stories, that's sort of the the moniker that they play under is news three neighbors. Um, 
it gives me an opportunity to let people explain how the Lord has used them in their vocation or in their volunteer work. Got a phone call. We're taking a big detour. This is great. Here, this brother. is so great. This We're is taking so great. a huge detour. I've got some follow up questions too, so we'll <laughs> carry on. <laughs> I am now in who's charge. Who's the host here? <laughs> <laughs> it's going just the way I wanted it to go. <laughs> so I I got a phone call on the um on the way here. Uh, about oh an hour or so ago, and I had been in the bank, uh, the, the CBNT bank, uh, oh six weeks ago, maybe two months ago, and I noticed uh, a heart with a verse of scripture that was on someone's desk, and so I asked about it, and they said, "There's a gentleman here who makes these. He's he's a wood craftsman, and mm. and he creates these, and he." He he changes them out from time to time. When he comes in to do his banking business, he'll bring a fresh one with a new verse of scripture. Wow. So he will be one of those nursery neighbors, good news stories. Oh, he's gonna love it. That help people realize we That's do true. live in a depraved world. Yeah. We live in a sin filled world, but we live in a world of people who love God. They yeah. love their neighbor. They they want to do good. They do it, yeah. not with any expectation of somebody doing a story about them. In right. fact, the biggest challenge that I have in doing News Three Neighbors, when you approach somebody that's doing that, they say, no, no, right. I don't want the attention, and I have to try to arm twist them to say, but it will help other people realize I could be doing something like that person's yeah. doing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I have true. every ability to be able to make a difference in other people's lives that I don't even know using the God giftedness that I have. Right, right. So that's good. I've gone around the mountain on, on you, brother, but no, okay. I got, I got a follow up to that. Honestly. So uh, you're going to be 69 pretty soon. Um, uh, as you know, there's a group of men that meet at my house every Thursday. We've been meeting 22 years now, I think. Uh, and, but for the COVID interruption, which which took us apart from each other for just a handful of months. We didn't let that keep us apart for too long. Yeah, because you meet on a porch. We meet on a porch, right? <laughs> uh, but uh, we we had a conversation years ago. I may have mentioned it in the book, but it, it resurrects itself every now and then. Do you think that as we get older, that we at the same time get sadder? Okay, that was the question to the group. And... Uh, we didn't we didn't reach a consensus immediately. There was a lot of a lot of back and forth on the question. Uh, but I'm curious. Uh, again, with the weight of all of the bad news in the world that has accumulated on your shoulders over the years, mm -hmm. uh, do you think there's a sadness that grows out of that? Not to say pure sadness, mm -hmm. but a uh, a form of sadness that kind of comes with the turf for you. You're going to the book, and I'll never <laughs> and I'll never be able to find the one line that I uh, that I want to find for this moment. But but I would agree that we, as we get older, we tend to reflect more. Mm -hmm. We we tend to uh, analyze why people do what they do, <clears throat> and. Uh, and we re we regret more, yeah. Um, the things that we wished we'd have done differently, or right. that we wished other people had done differently, and and that brings on a sadness that had that 
decision not been made or that uh, uh, path not chosen, uh, the happiness that from from my perception maybe would have been different. Yeah. But um, <coughs> pardon me, my, my frog is in my throat. But um, and to be clear, while you're thinking, to be clear, uh, I think the the conclusion that this group of very common, ordinary kind of men came uh, to that morning is that yes, our sadness does increase just because we we live in it, you know, in the brokenness of the world so long. But at the same time, there is a joy that that comes at the same time. Uh, there's a song I wrote years ago, one of the very, very, very few songs I've ever written or tried to write about Jesus. And it says, uh, he seemed a walking contradiction, perfect joy and perfect sadness. His perfect sanity seemed madness in this world where he's a stranger. And I think that there is the coexistence of those two things that kind of grow up with us if our faith is moving in the right direction. There's a perfect sadness. Mm -hmm. Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Right. We know that he wept. It says in Hebrews when he prayed, he, he prayed with, with loud cries and tears. Uh, so we, we know that there was that part of, of Jesus. How could he not be brokenhearted about the world that he had made so beautifully and then see it for what we've, we've done to it? But at the same time, he said, my joy is going to be complete in you one day. Uh, indicating to me that he he was a man with a well full of joy, so much so that little kids had to be kept away from him, you know. But I think that's kind of the experience. And so when I think of Phil Scoggins, I think he is a radiant human being. To go back to the original point, he's a sweet man in the in the best and purest sense of the word. But I'll bet there are times that that uh, maybe not, but I, but I would almost bet that there are times you go home from a a, a newscast and you just say, God, what a broken world. And it's grievous to you. And I, I think, for me, uh, the, the benefit to seeing life that clearly is that when I get sad, I can say, this might very well be Jesus in me. And when I get really joyful, I can say, this very well might be Jesus in me. They coexist, and there's a, there's a, they're harmonious op opposites in some sense of the word. But especially now, given that the world is so, uh, just so angry, uh, I think it's good for us to be able to say, hey, it's okay to hurt. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to really live with a deep, a deep regret about what the world is and, and, and what part I have played in making it that way. But then to live hopelessly hopeful that there is this joy that comes from knowing, hey, God's in control. Mm -hmm. Nothing down here is surprising him all of a sudden. So all of that line of questioning, that interrogation, you just to say thank you for for being able to do what you and what Teresa does, uh, just to be able to still radiate hope to people in some way that's almost subliminal. So if I get called to play a gig and they say to me beforehand, hey, Mr. Levi, we know you're a man of faith. We don't want to hear anything about that tonight. Don't say anything about God tonight. That's This is not the time and the place. And I say, no problem. Because I do think that the Spirit of God can still work through our lives, our demeanor, Amen. the way that we project our love for people. Uh, I think the great mystery of our faith is that no matter what we're doing, whether it's punching buttons, holding a camera, asking questions, God can work in all of that. And the beauty of our stories is that no matter how insignificant we might be in the grand scheme of things or irrelevant, 
God can still use us. And so thank you, thank you for, for being that kind of person to people like me and Dylan and, uh, and others in our community. You just mentioned, and this is, I, I did find it on page 187. Increasingly, I'm convinced that the kingdom of God moves forward most enduringly when ordinary people do small things kindly and well over a long period of time. Yeah. Doesn't sure. have to be the flamboyant, right. doesn't have to be the headline. Yeah. Uh, consistency of doing yeah. acts of kindness right. well over a, a lifetime. And you know, I mean, the story you just told about the bank, what a, what a brilliant illustration of that. This man's probably in a shop by himself. Mm-hmm. Nobody's watching him. He's doing what he loves to do, mm-hmm. uh, communing with the God who I would guess he knows and loves. Mm-hmm. And he takes these little objects and passes them out, not knowing who's going to get them, where they're going to end up, what impact they're going to have. And you walk in and you see it and notice it. And, you know, it gets, it'll get some airplay. It'll get a little more attention for him. But what he can be confident of, what we can be confident of, whether we're mixing a show, whether we're writing a book, doing a song, saying our prayers, gardening, talking to a neighbor, is that in the kingdom of God, it all matters. His economy is so different than ours. And, uh, and the thing that I love about uh, the stories that you do, uh, the, the neighborhood stories, and even, even this podcast, is that you draw attention to people who are microscopic in the eyes of the world, myself being chief among them. But, but it does bring to the forefront that our lives all matter, and God is taking note of every one of them. So my brother lived that out brilliantly. Um, my guess is that most people who will listen to this uh, live that out brilliantly. And you and I uh, have no idea uh, who this podcast is going to touch, no. where they are. Uh, but we can hold out hope that it might be a blessing somehow to somebody, just like we can say of their lives uh, the same hope, that their life will touch somebody for Christ's kingdom in some deep, enduring way. You are a, um, a face of faith and and from what you write on the surface, people would would not necessarily put that moniker on you. Right. But let me just say, all you have to do is listen to Alan sing and hear his heart where the words are coming from. Yeah. And God's using you to touch people. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, before we leave the book, uh, you mentioned to me just a little while ago that you're working on another book. Yeah. You want me to tell you about it? Yeah, <laughs> I want to hear it. <laughs> of course. So, so honestly, Phil, I read a lot. Uh, I hope it will not hurt your feelings to know that I watch very, very, very little television. And that's not because I don't like television. I like it too much. And I just found myself many years ago uh, unable to turn it off when I should so that I could do other things. And so I just made a decision one year I'm going to take it out of my house for a while. And that was decades ago, and I just wow. I never have gotten around to getting it back. Now, that's not to say I don't hear news and watch news. My dad's got one. I'm with him a lot. Um, but I read a lot, and my tastes are very wide-ranging, so I read all sort of things. Um, and I think maybe the, the net effect of all of that reading has been that uh, I want to try my hand at it myself. And as I mentioned earlier, I grew up around good talkers. And to me, that's where really good writers come from a lot of times. Mm-hmm. 
so I've had several book ideas in my mind for the last few years, and I thought when I'm ever too arthritic or when my voice just gets uh, insufferably <laughs> bad, it's getting there quickly, uh, and, and I need to do something else, maybe I will maybe I'll write some books. And so I so enjoyed writing the letter to my family about my brother uh, that I think it piqued something in me. And so a, few, a couple of years ago, I was downtown, and I saw something that triggered an idea for a story. And I started turning it over in my mind. It's about an old man, an old artist. And, uh, and I started writing without really knowing what the plot was going to be. And I assumed there was a plot. Uh, but I did develop this, this old man character. He's a Portuguese man. So I went to Portugal with a nephew of mine for a couple of weeks just to see what it was like there and see if I could get some, some youthful authentication for this character. And I'm now 300-plus pages into it, and I don't know that I've ever enjoyed anything more. But it's still not a readable book, so I've got a lot of work to do on it. Uh, but I feel like if, if, the, you know, if the Lord lets me live long enough, there are some books uh, that are down inside me. And just because I love music and that, that part of the creative process as well, uh, the one that I'm working on now, there's a street musician, and I've written songs for him. And uh, I kind of have this, this wild idea that if I can ever finish it, because it's set in a town very much like Columbus, uh, that I'll do a concert, stage a concert with some readings, and there are some local artists that also kind of play a, a part in the story. Uh, but it would be kind of fun to have this, um, you know, this multifaceted thing, book, songs, artistry, portraiture, uh, those sorts of things. So stay tuned. I, I hope I will finish it. Well, the way that you write, um, I, I, I am enthralled with your um, folksiness. Yeah. Uh, it, it's not pretentious writing. It's not humongous words. You right. don't have to use uh, the dictionary to. It, it's it's very readable. Uh, Thank you. Here's a you know here's a paragraph, page seventy five, um, from the last sweet mile. I pray that I have used. Well, music was my life was my calling in life. I pray that I have used that talent for noble ends, to provoke Godward thought to celebrate the fullness of life that faith in Christ has given me, and to tell the story by which people can know peace with God and power over death. For as long as I sing, play, and write songs, I hope those ends will continue to guide me. Amen. Thank you. That's good. It is good. <laughs> and that's why I'm saying keep writing, brother. You, you have a gift. You, you really have a gift. So, Phil, every now and then somebody will ask the question, um, don't you get bored and don't you get lonely living like you do? So I live in the middle of uh, 1,600 acres. And you're single? Single. No, no children. Uh, my family's not nearby. My dad lives on the farm property with me. Mm -hmm. But I lived there for about 15 years by myself. Um, so don't you get lonely? And my answer is, well, of course. But everybody's lonely. Uh, when, we got, when we got put out of our home... Uh, we've been exiles ever since, and everybody carries loneliness inside them. I believe that. I don't think, though, that I'm any lonelier than the most happily married people I know. I mean, life is very rich, and it's full, and it has a lot of purpose uh, to me. Uh, I love my life. So on the loneliness part, yes but no. But when they get to the boredom part, 
Uh, I, I just have to tell them I honestly don't have any idea what you could mean by that. Uh, I live in this small community uh, that is rich with story, rich with people who like to talk. It's beautiful. The natural uh, order around me is just jaw-dropping. And, uh, and I think God has just kind of made me naturally curious. So last week I was writing a children's song. Uh, I go to read every Thursday morning when they allow us to uh, at one of the elementary schools up mm-hmm. in Harris County Park Elementary. And I was writing a, I'm writing a collection of children's songs right now that I want these kids to record with me. And the song is called Every Day Learn One Thing New. And living in Harris County, uh, as I have for just shy of 30 years now, uh, that's kind of been a mantra without my really ever knowing it consciously. That's kind of how I've lived. Uh, it might be a flower, it might be a bird, it might be how something grows, it might be a natural process, it might be a person's name, it might be whatever. But there's always something to learn. And so the the boredom piece just, I don't see how anybody could go through this world honestly and be bored unless they check out early and let somebody else do all of their thinking for them, which to me is one of the dangers of screens, even in in the youth culture in my family. Uh, but if we keep our minds and our eyes open, and if the Spirit of God is in us, He loves to teach us things. He loves us. He loves us to have a, a life of wonder, and uh, and a sense of curiosity about uh, what what God has placed right under our feet. And so, does that mean that my life doesn't have routine? And I think this is where some people get crossed up. They think if you live in the same place for a long period of time, and your life looks kind of the same every day, you must be bored. Routine is not boredom. Discipline is not boredom. So if I sit at my table, my writing table every day to write new songs, uh, it's not like I'm bored. I've done it thousands of days, but every time I do it, I get so excited that I can barely sit down. (laughs) So last week when I was writing, I'm serious, I could barely sit down. I've got some songs I'm working on right now that I'm really enjoying, and uh, there is no boredom. You brought some. You want to read some of the lyrics? Or are you prepared to do that? I can do that. Uh, and, well, you know, maybe maybe just the titles okay. would be kind of fun. So I'm working on one right now. This is not a happy song. It's about a married couple that I know that uh, is really in a real, real tough spot. It's called Fix the Unfixable. It's a song mm-hmm. about prayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let me. Uh, some of these lyrics are still being worked on. Maybe it's over and far beyond rescue. Maybe these prayers are a waste of my time. But you can move mountains. You change the seasons. You can give sight to the hopelessly blind. I wish I could help them. I wish I could heal them. But I lack the power to silence their rage. So I'm asking of you who are able, send them a miracle. You turn the page. Help the unhelpable. Stop the unstoppable. Give the unwilling the will to go on. Do the impossible. Fix the unfixable. Lord, help these children Mm. find their way home. Mm. So not a happy song at all, but it's honest and uh, it's hopeful. But there are times, I mean, when my brother was sick, you know, people would say we're praying for his healing, and I was praying for his healing. But I prayed for lots and lots and lots of people's healings, and they don't usually get healed. So I can either uh, take one of uh, two postures on that, just give up and say, well, God's not really there. He doesn't care. Or say, well, he's bigger than me, and I choose the latter. So on this one, he might fix this marriage, and he might not. Mm -hmm. But if he doesn't, he's not afraid of me to be honest and say, hey, Lord, my faith's not really all that strong here, but I'm going to still pray to you. 
here's another one. I was uh, walking down the street one day and I saw my reflection in a in a, a plate window. Yeah, and you know how usually if somebody turns on a camera, you kind of pose, you kind of <laughs> get your posture and everything just right. Yeah. Well, the the window caught me before I could pose, <laughs> and I saw myself for what I am, and it was frightening. So so I'm writing a song called "Reflecting on My Reflection," of me looking back at me, and it's just. It's really, again, it's a question because when I look at myself and see myself getting older and feel myself getting older, I can either throw in the towel and say, well, uh, this is a terrible state to be in, or I can say, hey, this is all part of the plan. Mm -hmm. So instead of holding on to the past, turn the page, and there's more wonder. There's still more to learn. God's still, you know, plenty big to be learned about. So that's one. I'm writing another one. What a perspective you have. Well, it's it's just, uh, thank you for saying that. Um, I think it just comes from being around interesting people, and it's, it's the Spirit of God. Mm-hmm. I think the Spirit of God makes us curious. He just does. I mean, you know, if you think about all that we know, like I'm writing another one right now, uh, and I, I didn't bring my lyrics for me, but uh, I'm going to buy me a telescope. I'm going to buy me a microscope. And one of those makes, one verse makes the point that I want to see the far away stuff mm-hmm. uh, a lot more clearly. And from that, I'm going to learn how small I am. But I also want to see the things that are tiny right in front of me a bit bigger so that I can see how wonderfully meticulous uh, God's creation is here. And that kind of draws on a passage from Pascal who said that of humanity. He said, we are absolutely nothing and we are absolutely everything. And by that, he was saying, or I think he said absolutely in, infinite. Uh, if, you, if you place a single human body under the night sky, we are nothing. If there really are stars that are a million light years away, a light year being six trillion miles, Mm -hmm. then any six or seven foot person is (laughs) nothing. Nothing. And Pascal says, so we're nothing. But he says, take that same person and start dissecting it into halves or her into halves. You can never get to the smallest part. He says, we're absolutely infinite. And again, it's one of those harmonious opposites that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, but we are dust. Mm-hmm. We are eternal, but we are vapor. And so this, this song about the telescope and the microscope is just saying, God, give me bigger eyes, better eyes, to see things more clearly. And, and that's just perspective, I think. Here's one that I'm writing that I really like. There was a little boy that was born recently, and his folks were nice enough to honor me by giving him my name. And this is a song, it's a lullaby, and it's telling this little boy, go to sleep. Dream a dream. I want you to dream the most beautiful dream you could possibly dream. A world where everything works right. Uh, Everything is perfect all the time. Dream, Dream a dream about that place. But let me warn you, when you wake up, you're going to look around and you're going to see a world that says, that is crazy. That could never be. And this world is nothing like that world. And you would be a fool to delude yourself into thinking that that's reality. The name of the song is Trust the dream because that is the realest world of all so it's, mm. it's a song obviously about heaven and then mm. here, here's here's the last one have we got time for me to oh, yeah. talk a little while sure so here's one that uh hey it's your show hey man <laughs> i want to turn it back to your side of the table so here's a song it's called love freely given and my piano player and i learned this one on friday morning for an upcoming gig um dr cresswell Yes, the one and only, Dwayne Crestwell, <laughs> one of my best friends in life and the most wonderful pianist. So talented. Uh, just a yes. great guy. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's fun to have Dwayne uh, 
kind of on the team with me because I have lots of lyrical questions when I start writing. And, you know, I might have five or six full pages of lyrics that I have to narrow down to 16 lines or so, and he's really good about helping me to, to parse those lines. But this is one about, uh, it's just, it's, it's a very, to me, theological song, but it talks about how God loves me not because I'm worthy of it, but because he's loved. That kind of harkens to a quote that I love by C.S. Lewis. God doesn't love us because we are lovable, but because he is love, not because he needs to receive but because he delights to give. And so the song starts off saying, you know, I'm imperfect and all that, but love is freely given, it's not earned. The next one talks about uh, Jesus commanding me to, to love the way that he loves me. So love people different than me. Love people who have different points of view, mm -hmm. who, who, especially on the political spectrum, uh, would be a, a, a world away from me. Uh, and then there's a little bridge part that says, no one is suggesting that this love is easy. The way of the cross is a hard way to live. Anger and vengeance come natural as breathing. It takes the power of God to forgive. And then the next verse talks again about, it's, it's kind of a call to repentance. Let's look to Jesus. Look at, look at how he loved us. And then the last verse says, So I will love Mr. Trump, and I will love Mr. Biden. I will love George Floyd. And Officer Chauvin, because we're all just alike. And if there's one thing I've learned, it's love's freely given. Love is not earned. And so the, the song, it kind of starts with this, this, this wide funnel of truth. But it, for me, it boils it down. How do we apply this to 2021, June, July? And that's the way Jesus tells me to live. And so I, 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 can't, I can't look at somebody uh, and, you know, put them under my, my foot because um, we're all just alike in some ways. I was telling Dwayne the other day, one of the things that's interesting about the song is that there are some mild contradictions. So the line that says the way of the cross is a hard way to live, it is. And it's also the easiest and the best way to live. Uh, and when it says we're all just alike, that's true. And it's not true in, in a lot of mm -hmm. ways. We are all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all need redemption. But the truth is our, our lives are extremely different uh, in other ways. So these are just some that I started last week. Uh, but I'm trying to put in three or four hours a day right now writing. And, uh, and I'm trying to line up some, some work in the fall here locally. I'm really tired of traveling. Uh, but I still want to tell the story of Jesus every way I can. Uh, so I'm trying to book maybe some gigs here locally uh, that allow me to play new material, and give me a reason to write even newer material um, and, and keep telling the story. Do you ever wake up in the middle of the night with lyrics? Often. Often. I've lost a lot of sleep over songs in, in my life. She is a jealous mistress. But I've, I've learned to keep a pen and paper by the bed. Yeah, and do it. I've, I've got a lot of songs that are like that. And all during the day, I'm kind of constantly out, uh, you know, trolling for new material, and it's everywhere. That's the problem. It's too much. <laughs> too much. Way too much. Do you have um, a favorite faith moment? A time when God shows up mm -hmm. um, in a way that's undeniable and is overpowering? Yeah. Uh, there have been many that fit that description. 
Uh, Gary's passing was probably that most poignantly for me. Uh, there have been some moments in my life where I was, uh, I mean, I had made really bad choices and, and had had some awful moral failures. And some of those in some roundabout kind of way have been really formative for me because I like so many people, so many Americans especially, I think, have grown up with, with a theology that's almost performance-based. It's almost, uh, I don't know, it, 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 it's, it's more of a, a, a moral show rather than a heartfelt love for Christ, and there's a world of difference, the Pharisees versus a believer kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But when I've had those bad moments, uh, it's like God has said to me, Alan, yeah, you really, really blew this. But I want you to know I don't love you one bit less. Uh, the whole purpose of this thing is for you to know that nobody can take you out of my hand, not even you. And, uh, and so there are a couple of those in my life that uh, are very, they burn very, very bright. But I would like to think, Phil, that uh, every day there are those kind of moments. So when I go to a funeral and I hear somebody uh, remembered at the eulogy for things that happened 20, 30, 40 years ago, especially regarding their faith, uh, as, as in, hey, this guy li has lived a, a, a horrible last 50 years of his life, but when he was 12, he, he said a prayer. Those always kind of, you know, they, they concern me. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would love to think that uh, if somebody were to eulogize you, me, or, or Dylan, any of us, instead of going back 20 years, they could say, hey, you know, last week or two weeks ago or yesterday, excuse me, yesterday I was with Alan or Phil or Dylan, and their love for Christ was so deep and real. Uh, I want to live a faith like that so that I don't have to keep going back to mountaintops. Mm -hmm. But it's all just You don't a, have to go back 24 hours. It's a life of wonder, you know, and God's present at the center of it all. And again, maybe nobody else sees it in me or us. But if he's alive in us, we know he's, he's alive in us, to your point. Mm -hmm. He lives within our hearts. One of the things that you, I, I believe you still do, and I know Gary did this, uh, make a pilgrimage many times a week to Harris County High School. Mm -hmm. Describe how that started and why you're still doing it. Yeah, so uh, that was Gary's idea. Uh, he was a missionary for the last 20-plus years of his life. Yeah, 20-plus years of his life. Um, but he loved to be around people. And so when he came home, he didn't want to stop doing the work of inviting people to come and walk with Christ. So he was a substitute teacher some uh, and really became a favorite of the kids and the teachers. Uh, but when he quit doing that, he still wanted to be around kids. So he asked the principal up there at the time, could we come and stand at the back door and just greet kids in the morning? And that was maybe 15, 16 years ago. Uh, that's also the way that young life uh, the, the ministry Young Life works. It's called incarnational work, just showing up mm -hmm. where people are and then hopefully loving people in a way that you earn some some right to speak mm -hmm. into their lives. Uh, so, yeah, for the last 15, 16 years, three, four, sometimes five, uh, usually Thursdays I stay home with our men's group and we pray for the high school. Mm -hmm. But Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, if I can, I go up. And at this point it's pure selfishness. Uh, early on, it, there might have been a little bit of, of sacrifice involved, but it's pure selfishness now. There could there could not possibly be a better way to start a morning uh, 
than saying hello to a thousand kids, calling a few hundred of them by name and hugging a hundred of them. It just, it's just the best way in the world to start a day. And it has endeared me to my community. So when people say, don't you get bored, I just think to myself, are you kidding me? <laughs> with the young folks that I get to see every day come through the back door of the school and the teachers that I get to interact with, the stories I get to hear, how could life possibly be boring? I do think that you have to be somewhat intentional in a small community of finding ways to connect with people because it would be very dangerously easy to be a hermit, a recluse. But just go to the gas station a couple times a day, go to the post office once a day, go to the school every morning, and you've got a pretty people-rich life. Yeah. But that's one of my favorite things to do. And, uh, and Gary and I would pray, as I do in the mornings before I go to the school now, Lord, please let me be Christ to some kid today in some small way. And I don't mean that in any, any self-congratulatory way. C.S. Mm -hmm. Lewis says that we are all, if we're followers of him, we're all little Christs. And so my prayers, let my, let my presence be a blessing to these kids. And it's great. We've been talking an hour. My gosh. We always talk an hour. <laughs> <laughs> we usually talk longer. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for letting me be a part I, of this. I think people have gotten just a glimpse of who Alan Levi really is. And thank you for letting your heart be on display for us to see and, and feel. Thank you. Um, I, I owe you a trip to your front porch. I've mentioned this uh, before we actually started taping how that on several occasions, I've gone to Alan's house with the idea of doing a story on Alan. <laughs> Take my camera and set it on the front porch, and we sit down in the rocking chairs or the, the, the lawn chairs there, and an hour and a half later, the camera's still sitting there, <laughs> but we have been involved in the most invigorating and inspiring uh, conversations about life and, and about God. Yeah, that's good. And it's rich. Amen. And Let's I, do it again. I appreciate your friendship, Alan, and and who you are to the community. When you do sing, you know you your message doesn't fall on deaf ears. Uh, the Lord uses your words that are describing things that seemingly don't have a connection, but the Lord connects the dots in the hearts of people to help them understand. This is what you're really singing about about Him. Thank you. Thank you. We'll have to do it again. Love to. Thank you. All right. And as always, um, we always end this podcast by saying whatever you're going through, just remember, keep the faith. <laughs>